Welcome back to the Plowcast. I'm Peter Momsen, editor in chief at Plow. And I'm Susanna Black, senior editor at Plow. This is the big interview. Pete's talking with Eugene McCarraher, professor of humanities and history at Villanova, author most recently of 2019's The Enchantments of Mammon How Capitalism Became the Religion of Modernity. I wasn't there for this interview, much to my chagrin, so take it away, Peter. So we're living in this moment where capitalism is in question again uh, around the world in all kinds of ways, and yet it has an amazing resilience, uh, seems despite the various challenges it's facing, uh, in many ways as hegemonic as ever, as dominant in the way the world works. What's your view of, of the state of capitalism today? Is it seriously threatened? Um, I do think it is, um, though that doesn't necessarily mean that I think it's going to collapse next week or next month or even in the next couple of decades. This is a very fragile system, which uh, it seems particularly over the last 25 to 30 years has needed constant um, re rebooting by government money. Uh, you know, whether this is, you know, the tech tech collapse of 2000, whether it's the banking and financial system collapse of 2008, and whether it's this, you know, relatively smaller, but still, I think, very significant and indicative uh, and illustrative event. Uh, capitalism just seems to need more and more propping up. So you've constantly got to resort to uh, government bailouts, um, uh, even of, uh, you know, super investors, uh, you know, who will, you know, talk about what great, you know, swashbuckling risk takers they are uh, as venture capitalists. And then they're the first people to go to President Biden with uh, hats in hand, you know, please, please save me. So, so I do think that this is a very precarious system and possibly uh, even terminal. Uh, it, it's in a, a state of terminal decline. There's one uh, German sociologist uh, who I quote near the end of the book, Wolfgang Streck, um, who basically talks about capitalism in our time as being a kind of almost zombie uh, sort of, a, of an institution. It's, it, it's almost dead. Uh, it, you know, it continues to languish uh, thanks, as I said, to all kinds of government support. Um, and yet it doesn't die. Right? I mean, the damn thing just will not die. And um, he thinks that possibly for the next 50, 60 years, this is the state we're going to be in, uh, where things just kind of languish and drift. Yeah, so I think I think that capitalism is probably going to continue for a while. It's just not going to be very robust. And, and it's going to be, as I said, in this strange state where it's it's hegemonic, but not not quite as hegemonic as it was, uh, say during the sort of um, the, the halcyon days of neoliberalism in the in the 1990s and the, and the 2000s. Right when I went to college uh, in the late 90s, uh, it was definitely sort of this unquestioned fact of life that this is the world you're going to grow up and live your life and die in. And yet today, it does seem as if it's questioned on more and more sides. There was, of course, famously the Bernie Sanders run in this country in 2016. Uh, there is sort of growing interest in 
different forms of post-liberalism on the left and right. Um, on the right, you have, you know, new magazines like Compact, which are uh, not entirely on the right, but have a kind of right DNA, and yet are at least in word quite critical of capitalism. Uh, in American politics today, if you look at figures like uh, Josh Hawley or J.D. Vance, uh, who are willing, at least, to talk about uh, capitalism as a thing that isn't an unalloyed good. You write in one place in the book that capitalism is a love story, and it <laughs> seems that that love story might be in a bit of trouble today. Uh, yeah, it's it's a romance gone bad uh, and or you know sour. Josh Hawley and J.D. Vance, I think, are as phony as two dollar bills. I, you know, I, I I think these guys are uh, just utter opportunists. Uh, I I think that uh, you know they 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 say that oh capitalism is something that maybe isn't an unalloyed good, and yet they they vote in such a way that says the other that says otherwise. Um, so I'm not. I wouldn't put too much faith in uh, the Hawleys and the Vances of the world. I do read Compact magazine. I mean, I really think it's a fascinating journal. Um, I, yeah, it is this strange kind of hybrid uh, of of what seems to be a kind of left leaning or leftish kind of economic view, and yet it's also got this very culturally conservative sort of a stance. Um, and yeah, there's an there's an incredible array and mix of writers, sort of post liberalism that you see from uh, you know people like Adrian Pabst and um, John Milbank, uh, and you know arguably this a lot of what you read in Plow, that kind of post liberalism I'm really interested in. So capitalism, as most people think of it today, uh, apart from just sort of being a fact of life, if this is how our world works and this is how we all make our money, this is frequently presented as this kind of neutral social technology to enable maximum human flourishing. Could you walk us through the reasons why you disagree with the claim that is a neutral social technology that leads to greater human flourishing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, first of all, I don't think technology is ever neutral, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, social technology or whether it's, you know, technology technology, you know, and material devices. And the reason I think this is that technology is made by human beings. And uh, so therefore technology always embodies uh, some kind of human design and human uh, interest. So I, I, I can't understand how anybody would think that technology is neutral, uh, that, that somehow it's conceived and constructed and from some kind of Archimedean point of detachment or, or um, you know, complete objectivity. So that's just on the level of definition. I, you know, I, I find that uh, unpersuasive at that point. Um, the, I guess the other thing that I was taking issue with this, in this book most centrally is the idea that capitalism is somehow uh, this, this disenchanting um, uh, process. And, um, and even though, you know, it's made all, and, and one of the arguments is you, suggest that's often made for it is that it's brought us all this uh you know all this great material progress uh it's it's led to all these incredible benefits uh that's you know 
taken us out of poverty and misery and oppression and, and destitution. And I want to tell a somewhat more complicated story in this book. I mean, you know, first of all, I don't think the world can be disenchanted um, because I think that the world is a sacramental place. Uh, I think that it's pervaded by the uh, by the presence of God. You know, the the uh, <laughs> the world is charged with the grandeur of God, as as Gerard Manley Hopkins put it. So I don't think that the world can ever be disenchanted. Uh, I think that this is a story we've told ourselves. Uh, about the meaning of modernity uh, and, and the meaning of capitalism. And I just don't think it's true. Uh, as for the uh, material progress that, that humanity has made in many areas, um, I don't, uh, you know, I don't deny a lot of that. I mean, you know, quite obviously we are materially much better off than we were in the 17th century. We are by and large healthier, uh, we live longer, uh, we are better educated, you know, than, than we were in the 17th century. I don't, I don't deny any of that. It seems to me, however, that we should take, um, I think, a, a somewhat different view of, of this. Um, I, I think, you know, for example, that this material progress that we've made, um, the only reason it's distributed with even the you know the degree of uh, equitability that it is, is thanks to political movements. There's there's no sort of natural uh, or or uh, inevitable kind of um, equity to the way that we distribute goods. Um, I also think that the so so I think there's a lack of politics uh, in, in the way that this uh, this is capitalism is often viewed. I also think that there's been a failure to distinguish uh, in a lot of this material progress between what John Ruskin once called wealth and what he called ilf. Uh, you know, our, our general way of looking at an economy now is to simply ask, well, how much stuff did we produce in the previous year? When, when we have uh, measures like the gross domestic product, we don't ask, for example, uh, was, this, was any of the stuff that we produced actually good for us? You know, it's 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 one thing to say that, oh, great, you know, we produced a lot of good fruit and vegetables and a lot of uh, things that actually contribute to human flourishing. But we also produce things like cigarettes. Uh, you know, we, we also produce. Uh, well, OK, I guess this is a political view. We also produce nuclear reactors, you know, things like this. So there's no kind of moral valuation of of a lot of the stuff or a lot of the, quote, material progress. That we um, uh, that we produced, and and I haven't even mentioned yet the ecological cost of all of this, right? I mean, you know, so far I've I've talked, you know, I focused on the human, uh, you know, dimension of this, but we're talking about capitalism operating in a, in a, on a planet, uh, and, you know, and you you simply can't have indefinite growth when you've got you know a, at least a somewhat finite, uh, you know base of resources. So we're only beginning, I think, to reckon with the, the ecological price uh, that we've had to pay for a lot of this. Um, so I think the story is just a heck of a lot more complicated than, you know, what the, the sort of story that you would hear from the Steven Pinkers of the world uh, about, about how wonderful this whole thing has been. We know that all of this is bad. 
And yet we don't seem to be able to act any differently. And, and I think that a lot of the reason for this is that we don't know what we want. We, we sort of know that capitalism is going to destroy us, right? But on the other hand, yeah, but what's the alternative? Mm. You know, and, and, and if you don't have an alternative, you're, you're by default going to just keep acting the way you've been. So I think that's I, I think that's part of the reason that even though I, in a lot of ways I think neoliberalism is no longer uh, hegemonic, you know, to the same degree that it was, we we don't seem to have any conception of what an alternative way of life would be. So we just you know go into default mode. I'd like to talk a little bit about this word enchantment, which mm -hmm. is so key in your book, um, the idea of capitalism of mammon as an enchantment there's as a kind of magical power that's uh mm -hmm. perhaps got a bit of a spiritual uh agency of its own uh above and beyond what its participants may wish for or intend capitalism even by its critics is usually thought of as secular mm -hmm. as a this worldly thing even by you know, uh, devout Christians who embrace the free market economy, uh, they would think of capitalism as disenchanted. And even critics such as Karl Marx famously, uh, he wrote, and, and I'm quoting uh, words that you include in your book, how capitalism dissolves all fixed, fast frozen relations with their train of ancient and venerable prejudices Capitalism drowns the most heaven, heavenly ecstasies of religious fervor in the icy water of egotistical calculation. So Max Weber, of course, is is famous for sort of uh, probably not inventing, but at least making popularizing the thesis that modernity is all about this process of disenchantment. Uh, you take issue with this long established view, and you argue that capitalism though supposedly secular, is enchanted no less than the pre-modern worldviews, say, of the Middle Ages, that it supplanted. What does it mean that capitalism is enchanted? And how does that matter about how we think about our world today? I think capitalism is enchanted uh, because, well, most fundamentally, because I think we treat it with this kind of sacred awe uh, and, and veneration. Um, <clears throat> Even though we don't, we'll, we we will often tell ourselves, no, we don't really revere the dollar. We don't really uh, consider it sacred. Well, yeah, we do, uh, and 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 the reason we do is that I think under capitalism, money actually does become a kind of moral or even ontological arbiter uh, of what's good and even what's real. Um, you know, one one way I like to illustrate this when I teach business students, and believe it or not, I get a lot of business students in my classes at Villanova, um, is I'll say, look, you guys in uh, standard economics, you have this notion called effective demand, right? And they'll say yes. And I said, well, you know, effective demand basically says that if I'm thirsty, but I don't have any money to pay for, say, a bottle of water, my thirst does not exist. It does not exist as a matter of the market. Am I right? And they'll say, yes, <laughs> yeah, that's true. 
your your uh, your your thirst has no effective demand, right? I cannot I cannot turn my thirst I, I, you know into quenching my thirst because I have no money. Now you and I both know that I'm still thirsty, but as a matter of the market, my thirst is non-existent. That I try to explain to them is both a moral and an ontological assertion, <laughs> right? The market is an ontology. It, it is a way of understanding what's real about the world. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that usually we used to attribute to a divinity, <laughs> right? Or to a God, right? I mean, you know, deciding not only what was right and wrong, but what was real and what was unreal. Um, you know, we, we believe that somehow the ontology or the metaphysical structure of the world was determined by some sort of a divine being. Well, that's the role money plays uh, in, a, in a capitalist society. If you don't have the money, you don't exist, uh, you know, or your needs don't exist. And I think none other than Karl Marx noticed this, right? I mean, you know, Marx, I think, was in, in some ways of two minds about this, because he did say, as you quoted him from the Communist Manifesto, right? I mean, he does say, you know, capitalism is this secularizing force. It's this disenchanting force because, you know, everything gets reduced to calculation. He's also the guy, however, who in Das Kapital, in the very first uh, volume, introduces this uh, notion of what he calls commodity fetishism. Or, or the fetishism of commodities. And, you know, he starts off that passage by saying that, uh, you know, the commodity, I gotta remember the quote exactly here, the commodity is a queer thing. It has uh, metaphysical subtleties and theological niceties. This is Marx writing, right? And then what he, what he does in the rest of that passage is he's trying to explain how it is that, um, in, in the capitalist marketplace, the value of something is determined in pecuniary terms, not, not whether it's useful or not, or you know, what, it's, what its utility is. It's all about what it can fetch in the marketplace. So in other words, money, is, money in capitalism has this kind of fetishistic quality uh, where, you know, where we start attributing all kinds of powers uh, to to money that it only really has because of us uh, and, and the way that we act, but we act as though it's somehow money itself uh, that that uh, creates all of this value, or, or that you know somehow marks all of this value. So I think that capitalism is is historically unique in this regard. I mean, you know, ancient and medieval societies were always very suspicious of the power of money. Uh, which is one of the reasons, you know, in, 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 the, in antiquity, money was considered a god, right? Uh, you know, and not just, uh, you know, in, in the Near East, uh, where, you know, the name Mammon was given to it. But you see this across many cultures uh, in the ancient world, that, that money is deified and um, not necessarily in a good way, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a bad god. It's a bad spirit. Um, uh, the spirit of acquisition and of uh, ruthlessness is, is usually associated with it. There's this quote from the theologian Jacques Ellul I love that kind of illustrates this. He writes, money is a power. This term should be understood not in its vague meaning of force, but in the specific sense in which it is used in the New Testament. 
power is something that acts by itself, is capable of moving other things, is autonomous or claims to be, is a law unto itself, and presents itself as an active agent. Yeah. I think the, I think the really important part of that quote is it presents itself as being an agent. And, you know, it seems to be an autonomous power. You know, one thing that I think, um, I, I think the Marxist tradition is very strong on this. And, and this is something that I think uh, uh, Christians especially should pay attention to, is that, you know, Marx comes, keeps coming back to this idea that really the power of money is our power, that, that we have somehow, you know, deified uh, in, you know, in, in this fashion. And I think um, this will probably, you know, anticipate some remarks I'll make later uh, in our in our conversation. I think we're doing the same thing right now to technology. We're we're giving it this kind of independent agency uh, in our lives. When, as I said, technology is made by us, which means that you know when we're talking about the power of technology, we should properly be talking about the power of some people over others. Speaking of of money as a power, uh, of course, brings us to the New Testament. Uh, and this word mammon, uh, that's in the title of your book, uh, of course, comes from the Gospels. Uh, there's a saying of Jesus that is familiar to all of us. No man can serve two masters. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. That's in Matthew 6.24. So what is mammon and how does using this term change how we think about capitalism? Well, mammon in the New Testament is a god. Uh, it's a, it's a, or at least a spirit, uh, a demon. Um, and uh, it's a demon which, you know, encourages acquisitiveness, cupidity, um, ruthlessness, uh, endless dissatisfaction, you know, for the for the purposes of endless acquisition uh, and, and growth. The reason I think it's important to talk about it as a spirit, and what it, the reason I think that's important for our, our understanding of, or the way we talk about capitalism, is that we usually understand capitalism strictly as a political economy. Uh, you know, we think about it as a certain configuration of markets uh, and property and uh, different roles for the state uh, and so on. And this is the way that, you know, look, conservatives, liberals, Marxists, this is the way we usually talk about this. And yet it seems to me that, uh, and this is part of what I'm getting at when I use the term mammon, is that capitalism is also, I think, a form of moral imagination. Uh, and it's a form of spiritual formation. Uh, we don't, again, we don't usually think of it that way, but I think that's what it is. Uh, I think we should start talking about, for example, uh, advertising as a form of iconography. Uh, you know, every bit as much as, you know, seeing saints and, uh, you know, stained glass windows at Chart is, is a form of iconography, just as, uh, you know, Eastern Orthodox churches are filled with, uh, with icons. I think that this is actually one of the best ways to try to understand what's going on in the advertising uh, symbolic universe, because what is what is being upheld in advertising? Uh, you're not just selling goods; you're selling a way of life. You're selling a way of thinking about the way people should uh, should live. You're you're selling an image of the good life. How is that any different from you know being told, being shown on the windows of Shard that 
you know, you should you should be like, uh, you know, Saint whoever. Um, I don't think there's really much of a difference. Uh, you know, both both are forms of, as I said, of moral imagination. Uh, there's a certain conception embedded in these images of what um, of what's right, what's wrong, what's proper, what's uh, what's improper. And it's also a form of spiritual formation, uh, you know, toward what should your soul be directed? Um, you know, in chart, it's, well, heaven, right? It's, it's the kingdom of God. It's the beloved community, you know, whatever you want to call it. In capitalism, your spiritual formation is, how do you get a hefty bank account? Uh, you know, how, how do you, and you know, there are different ways you could put this. How do I provide for my family? Uh, you know, or how do I, you know, capitalism is always able to appropriate family values uh, to its uh, ideological repertoire. Um, but it's still in, in, in fundamentally about how do I make, how do I accumulate the most money that I can or my company can. Within Christianity, uh, there is this going right back again to the New Testament, this I don't think hostility to to money to capitalism uh that's you know just barely remains just barely below the surface throughout christian history uh after jesus of course uh the book of acts tells about the first church in jerusalem uh in acts two and four there's it paints a picture of the first church uh, of the believers holding all things in common, of sharing, of giving uh, to each according to their need, uh, and of all contributing what they can. Uh, kind of Marxist sounding kind of sounds uh, like passage. <laughs> and, and of course, he, Marx himself, re regarded this voluntary communism of the first church as a kind of prototype of the communist society he envisioned or hoped for or expected, predicted. What what is the importance of that the early church's approach to economic sharing, and what is the distinction between that kind of voluntary communism and the political communism that we associate with, you know, a lot of what happened in the twentieth century? So I think the uh, I think the importance of that uh, depiction of the earliest Christian community in the Book of Acts, uh, the reason that I think it should be almost stenciled on the forehead of every Christian is that what this demonstrates is that the early Christians were communists, uh, you know, with a, with a small C. Uh, I cannot reiterate this enough. You know, uh, my friend David Bentley Hart has been insisting on this at least for the last five or six years, uh, both in, you know, essays that he's written and uh, even in his translation of the New Testament. You know, he, he goes out of his way to make this point. You know, Christians have found ways for centuries, uh, all kinds of laughable exegetical strategies to try to make the text say, not say what it clearly does say, uh, that, you know, people held their goods in common and that they distributed things according to need. Um, you know, especially during the Cold War, there was a, uh, you know, a, 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 an obsession with trying to make this text say something entirely different from what it actually says. Um, so I think what it demonstrates is that in some ways communism, small c communism, is 
the political unconscious of Christianity, right? I mean, it's not as though, you know, the early Christians had some kind of a program for changing society. I mean, that's, you, you just didn't have that kind of thing in the ancient world. Uh, you know, you don't have ideologies or, um, you know, visions of social reconstruction or, or progress that you have in, in modern times. Um, and I think that's one of the things that makes the communism of the early Christians different from that, from the sort of communism that Marx envisions. Because Marx's communism, I mean, you could go down the, the list of things that make it different, right? I mean, the idea that, um, you know, there's a theory of class struggle, you know, there's a whole historical theory behind it. Um, the fact that um, uh, Marxian communism, at least in the way it's played out historically has involved the, the an authoritarian state, you know, to to direct production and re, and distribute goods. I think that one of the most that one of the key differences uh, between the vision of the early Christians and that of uh, uh, modern Marxists is that the communism of modern Marxism is very much in line with the capitalism of its predecessor and antagonist, right? So, you know, capitalists are always talking about growth and technological innovation and how uh, the object of capitalist enterprise is constant, constant production of material abundance, you know, and, and so on. That Marx thinks this too, right? I mean, this is, this is very clear uh, uh, when you read, um, you know, through the volumes of Das Kapital, that, that Marx too thinks that, hey, man, communism, we're going to let her, let her rip. In, in terms of technological progress, in terms of material development, um, you know, it's it's a very modern vision in in, in the sense that uh, technological development, and material abundance are seen as goods in themselves, um, you know, regardless of you know any other kind of end, <laughs> you know, or or any other kind of uh, human objective. That to me, I think, is in many ways the defining difference uh, between these two forms of communism. Just a little housekeeping. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Pete will be back with the rest of his conversation with Eugene McCarriher after the break. You know, I love that phrase that you just used of, of communism, this early Christian form of communism as the barely repressed political unconscious of Christendom. And you see that, of course, moving forward to the church history, that remained part of, of Christian teaching. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, who remains the basis of Catholic social teaching today, uh, spoke of the universal destination of goods. Has anything shifted if we think no longer of communism, but rather of the universal destination of goods? Yeah, I think even there, Aquinas is, is is registering just how far that we've come from the original vision, <laughs> right? Because because uh, Aquinas doesn't at all believe in common ownership. You know, I mean the the notion of of um, the notion of communism or or of you know universal destination of goods is one that is very much compatible with incredible inequalities of wealth. Um, you know, I, I think that this is one of the problems, in fact, with a lot of Catholic social teaching is that they're trying to reconcile two different things. 
they're, they're trying to reconcile what's essentially a, a capitalist notion of private property with a ancient or with an ancient or medieval notion that, well, you know, we should distribute goods equitably. You can't do both of those things, <laughs> right? Uh, you, you can't do both of them at once. And uh, I think this is, in some ways, this is the basic problem with a lot of Catholic social teaching. And, and you can see it, you can see it in Aquinas. Um, Aquinas is not gonna is not gonna ask the kings and the the, the feudal lords of his time to surrender their their castles and their and their fiefdoms. You know he's not gonna go there. Uh, but but he also has the Book of Acts in front of him. So you know how what what is a scholastic to do? Uh, you know so what he what he does is he, he he talks about the universal destination of goods. You know we should all try to. We should all try to help the poor and we should, but he doesn't say abolish poverty. Yeah. Uh, you know, that would require something that was much more, much more radical and much more uh, threatening to the powers that be, you know, both of the 13th century and, you know, and of the 21st, you know, for that matter. Given the fact that Jesus was so clearly hostile to mammon and St. James speaks so strongly about uh, what awaits the wealthy, the Apostolic Fathers, the Didache, they all sort of re-echo these themes, uh, St. John Chrysostom, Basil of Caesarea, uh, and as you say, Aquinas himself, are, are pretty nervous uh, about money all the way through. So it's striking how big a role Christianity and its various forms have played in the rise of capitalism as we know it in the modern world since the 17th century. Uh, this is a vast story, but how did that happen? Could you kind of sketch it out real fast? Um, how was the apparent peace made uh, between Christianity and money-making? Well, I think that this is part of a much longer story. I, you know, the, 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 the peace that was struck with Mammon uh, was in a sense modeled on the peace that was inevitably struck with Caesar, uh, at, you know, and Mars, you know, what, what's sometimes called the Constantinian bargain. Uh, you know, in other words, you got, we're, we'll tolerate you guys, we'll let you guys preach, we'll let you, uh, you know, perform your liturgies, uh, we'll let you, basically we'll let you alone, we won't persecute you anymore, as long as you basically swear your allegiance to the structures of imperial Rome. Um, you know, and I think, you know, even though I teach at an Augustinian university, the, I think the villain in this piece is St. Augustine. You know, I mean, you know, he's the guy who basically signs the ideological warrant uh, or, or concordat for, uh, with, with the powers that be. So I think as soon as, as, as soon as you make that kind of a bargain with Caesar uh, and, and with Mars, you know, if you want to you use another god, there's a sense in which the peace with Mammon is just inevitable, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of part of the deal that, uh, you know, you have to, you have to strike, a, strike some kind of a, an understanding and, and often a very lucrative one uh, with, uh, you know, with, with these powers that be. I mean, specifically about capitalism, I think I think that Weber was right uh, when, when he said that there was something crucial about the Protestant Reformation here, 
And uh, I, you know, I do think that what uh, happens, and again, this is a, a much longer story that I tell in the book, but one of the uh, effects of the Protestant Reformation, particularly in its Calvinist, um, uh, its Calvinist dimension, is a certain kind of desacramentalizing of of the natural world uh, and and of the world in general. Um, and so, as I've said before, since I think that the world is a sacramental place. I think that what happens here is that you know money rushes in to fill that kind of sacramental va uh, vacuum or, or or that kind of um, moral or ontological vacuum, and I think that that's that's one of the big reasons why the Protestant Reformation does remain central to understanding the the rise of capitalism. Now, you know, when you get into the 19th and 20th centuries, I mean, you know, you're talking about, I think, especially evangelical Protestantism has has become <laughs> good God. I mean, you know, Chris Lehman once once called it the money cult, <laughs> you know, which um, I'm sad to say, I, I think that that's what a lot of it has become. Uh, and, 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 you know, as I argue, you know, later in the book, I think you can't understand evangelical Protestantism or for that matter, Mormonism. Uh, without understanding uh, it, their deep ties to um, American capitalism and its development in the 19th century. Now, I don't want to let Catholics off the hook here, <laughs> okay? Um, you know, I, I think, I think uh, you know, in many ways, Catholics, especially after the Second World War, I mean, you know, once they start getting educated and once they start entering the middle class and once they start, you know, basically living in the suburbs, you know, Catholics, basically you're joining in this party too, right? I mean, Hey, let's, let's all make money. Let's all, you know, become, uh, let's all become venture capitalists and, and, and whatnot. And, uh, you know, you got theologians or philosophers like Michael Novak and, you know, father Richard John Newhouse, you know, putting basically baptizing this with holy water. And, um, you know, so I'm not going to let my my fellow denominationalists uh, off the hook. You know, everybody's, everybody's guilty here, <laughs> or just about everybody, anyway. As a good Christian, we kind of have to say that everyone is guilty to some degree. But there is this counter-tradition, this uh, stream of people throughout church history, uh, throughout, throughout the history of the West, particularly who did not go along with this, who saw, were critics of capitalism, who uh, harked back to those original, you know, quote unquote, communist seeds of Christianity and uh, tried to make them come alive. Could you describe this counter, what I'm calling this counter tradition, you call it uh, critics of capitalism, uh, what were they, what were the, some broad commonalities of that critique? And then we're going to talk about a few individual people, uh, who maybe are, are worth rediscovering again. Yeah, I, um, the name I give to this counter tradition is capital R romanticism. Um, it includes Christians, though many are not. Uh, or, you know, they're Christians who could be Orthodox or heterodox Christians. Um, basically, I think romantics uh, are the heirs to the medieval sacramental imagination, 
right? The, the, the medieval sacramental imagination was the one that I was outlining earlier, that, that uh, you know, God is everywhere. God suffuses the material natural world. Um, you know, sacramental, not just in the sense of the discrete seven sacraments, but, but a, you know, a sort of constitutive part of the architecture of the world. Um, and so romantics are in a sense post-Christian, uh, you know, because, you, you know, when you've got romantic writers like Blake and Wordsworth, it's not quite clear whether they're Christians or post-Christians or heterodox Christians or whatever. But, uh, you know, they still believe in some kind of divine presence that pervades the world, right? I mean, you can see this in Blake's, you know, talking about um, seeing the world, uh, seeing the heavens in a, in a wild flower, uh, Wordsworth's talking about, you know, some kind of a sense sublime that suffuses all things. Um, um, I, think, I think that Romanticism is not just a discrete literary and artistic movement of the late 18th and 19th centuries. I think it's actually a very distinctive feature of modern culture uh, in general. I think you can see Romanticism going all the way in my book up to the 1960s and 70s and some of the figures you mentioned like Kenneth Rexroth and Thomas Merton, uh, Theodore Razak, you know, is, is another one. Dorothy Day before them, you know, there, there, there's many, many in this cavalcade of romantics uh, in, in the book. What distinguishes them? Uh, as I said, I think that they, they see a kind of sacral significance in the material world which then I think makes them much more ecologically sensitive uh, and which means therefore that they don't see nature uh, or they don't, um, they don't value nature purely in instrumental terms. Uh, you know, what, what can it do for us? Uh, I think that they, they often appeal to pre-capitalist cultures uh, as sources of value. Uh, some of them do become reactionaries and they actually wanna go back to the middle ages quite literally. Uh, but most of them are not. Um, I think that they often are in favor of direct workers' control over production, which makes uh, many of the many of the romantic figures in my book are anarchists uh, and arts and crafts uh, writers and practitioners. Uh, they see labor as properly artisanal uh, rather than uh, mechanical. They see the act of labor itself as something that is actually a kind of poetry in action, a poetry of everyday life. This is why they tend to favor artisans and craftsmen. They believe that our technology should be more human scale and much more directly in our control. And they also see uh, property as in some sense communal or even communist. Even when they're talking about private property, that that privacy is always hedged, right, with all kinds of um, uh, restrictions and requirements. And, uh, uh, you know, you can see this in a figure like John Ruskin when he's talking about what communism means. I think that in many ways, Pope Francis uh, belongs in this romantic uh, uh, lineage, because when you read what he writes in Laudato Si', uh, his, his, uh, his encyclical on I think it's an, on all of society. I don't think it's just an ecological encyclical as it's often characterized. Um, he's talking about what he calls a social mortgage on property. That's, you know, that's kind of a way of saying that pri pri property isn't just private, right? 
e even though even though you you know that's that's unfortunately the word that we use to characterize it um it's not so the romantics uh the, this and this these romantics are a very big it's a big tent uh you know i don't I, I don't think it's so big that I think it's meaningless, but I, but I think um, these are the sorts of characteristics that I think you can uh, identify. So we agreed to talk about three of these figures, uh, all heroes of this romantic counter tradition. The first is not that well known, uh, Gerard Wynne Stanley, but he's a bit of, uh, he comes across as uh, someone who should be much more widely known. Who is he? What did he live in? Uh, what relevance do his insights have have for us today? Well, Gerard Wynne Stanley uh, was an English. Uh, at first, he was like a he was a herder. He was a uh, a, a practical, a barely employable guy uh, in the 1640s. He eventually, ironically, becomes the successful corn merchant. Uh, you know, after. Um, after the English, uh, after the English Revolution, but uh, when Stanley was one uh, was a member of what was uh, called the Diggers, uh, and these were people. Uh, I think there were about twenty or thirty of them who, one nice day in April, sixteen forty nine, decided that they were going to just go to some place called St George's Hill uh, outside of London, and they were going to just occupy a piece of common land. Right. I mean, so these were the first occupiers. Right. I mean, not the folks in 2011. You know, these these were the first occupiers. And they just said, look, nobody's using this land. We're poor farmers. We need food. So we're just going to go and do it. We're, we're just going to do it. And um, that lasted until August <laughs> when the owner of the land was able to get a legal uh, what we would call a legal injunction against them and had them kicked off the land. But. What's significant is that after that, when Stanley begins to write these pamphlets, and these are pamphlets which are basically religious and political tracts uh, in which he is basically articulating a kind of sacramental communism, right? I mean, he starts off uh, one of these pamphlets by saying the great creator reason made the earth a common treasury. You know, there you go. Uh, you know, God made the earth to be owned by all, to be worked by all. And um, basically what the diggers are doing is trying to, in effect, reinstate that pre-lapsarian, uh, you know, conception of the way things ought to be. And, um, you know, when Stanley is, is clearly very sacramentalist in the way he thinks about the world, he thinks about creation as what he calls the clothing of God. Uh, he uh, clearly thinks that private property is an evil, what he calls civil propriety. I and mean, that's what, what in our terms would be private property. He considers this an evil. This is a, this is a result of the fall. Uh, and, and uh, you know, now that in his view, Christ has, you know, reversed the effects of the fall. Therefore, we should, we should return to that blissful state uh, of, of communal property. When Stanley, to me, I think is the first romantic. I think he's. I think he's also significant, as I say, because Marxists have tried to appropriate him as being, in a sense, like this kind of proto-Marxist, and I, I just don't see that at all. So let's go forward into the Romantic era proper, almost two two centuries, to the essayist Thomas Carlyle. He wrote a bunch of essays. Uh, 
he described at one point the gospel of mammon, uh, just as the Industrial Revolution was picking up steam. So here again, uh, how does this observer of capitalism sort of going into acceleration, how can his insights tell us something about the world we're living in now? I think Carlisle is in some ways a very cautionary tale uh, about where things can get right and where they can go very wrong. Um, <clears throat> he, does, he does talk about the gospel of mammonism. Um, he also talks about the difference, at least the way I understand it, between what he calls wonder and what he calls enchantment. He actually uses this term. Uh, wonder to Carlyle, I think, is a, is a kind of sacramental imagination. Right, when he's talking about the wonder of creation, the wonder of the world, the amazing nature of the fact that the, just the fact that the universe is, you know, regardless of uh, you know the, the particulars of what's in it, wonder is a kind of sacramental sensibility. Enchantment is a kind of perversion of that, right? Uh, you know, in his view, which is related to the gospel of mammonism, where we we evaluate everything in terms of pecuniary uh, values. He also talks about this uh, thing called heroism, right? And there's this book of his called Heroes and Hero Worship, which, which I think is very uh, significant. Hero, heroes to him and heroism is, is a way of understanding this wonder. Heroes are, are people who exhibit wonder uh, at the world and exude this kind of wonder and, and act in accordance with this wonder. Um, the problem, though, with the way he understands heroism is that only a few people are capable of this, right? Um, Carlyle is, in many ways, a profoundly elitist and anti-democratic thinker, precisely because of this. And I think this, you know, he talks about mobocracy. He talks about people, people's, quote, amenability to fear and balderdash you know i mean this is this is the kind of thing that uh you know you you often hear from a certain kind of conservative that um eh, you know most people really are just rabble they'll never understand anything they need to be led they need to be told you know what to do they're not smart enough to figure things out and this is why you really can't believe in democracy in the end i mean they won't say that uh you know quite often but um so I think Carlyle uh, ends up, you know, being a kind of advocate of the gospel, uh, what he calls the gospel of work, uh, and of what he calls captains of industry. Um, he's he's very much a believer, uh, not so much in the gospel of mammonism, but in in the gospel of work, and um, you know, in, in a sense, he never stopped being a Puritan. <laughs> And that way, he's a, a contrast to his contemporary, John Ruskin, who also figures in your book. Uh, you d mentioned already his distinction between wealth and, and ilf. Yeah, Ruskin, Ruskin's a whole other kettle of fish. Ruskin himself was certainly no small-D Democrat, uh, but he was, I think, a much keener and, and a much, in his way, I think, much more small-D Democratic thinker than, uh, than Carlyle was, because you know, Ruskin is always talking about the creativity and the talent uh, of ordinary people, uh, of ordinary artisans and farmers and, 
other, um, uh, I guess, small fry, you know, mm. As, mm. as opposed to uh, uh, Carlisle's heroes. Uh, Ruskin is in his, even though Ruskin considered himself a Tory and called himself a Tory, you know, he's he's also a guy who considered himself a communist. So, you know, part of what I try to do in the books is explain how, how this guy could be a Tory and yet also be a communist uh, mm. at the same time. A third thinker I'd like to talk about is uh, Edward Arnold, the founding editor of Plow, who wrote an essay, The Fight Against Mammon, in 1924, very much inspired by the Romantic movement. Could you reflect a little bit on that essay and what it means? This is an essay that appeared after the Bolshevik Revolution was seven years old um, and was an attempt I think to kind of recover this early Christian communism for the 20th century. First of all, is what you just mentioned. I mean, what uh, what Arnold is clearly trying to do is both understand the Bolshevik Revolution. He's trying to understand uh, various socialist and anarchist movements, and he even says at one point, you know, look, we're we're in a lot of fundamental agreement with these people. Uh, you know, they're not wrong. Uh, about about a lot of what they're saying about the the injustice and indignity of capitalism. Um, what they're not seeing <laughs> is that, I mean, first of all, violent revolution is not going to is just not going to cut it because you know, first of all, it's going to involve a lot of bloodshed. Uh, you know, which we're you know we see other people as our brothers and sisters. We're not we shouldn't be shedding their blood. The other thing that I really appreciated about that piece was what he says about the role of churches have played uh, in uh, in in perpetuating capitalism and 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 just basically going along to get along. And um, even when they even when they you know have these scriptures and often they'll preach these scriptures on Sunday, which are constantly telling people that look, <laughs> Mammon is an evil god, right? You know, you you should not be uh, you should not be following this master, and yet you're trying to serve two masters. So, for these figures and the other romantics uh, that you describe, this sort of romantic counter tradition, many would object hearing about this. Well, they're just romantics. Um, they're idealistic. They're not effectual. Uh, pretty much the critique uh, Marx would have of some of his sort of proto-communist predecessors like Proudhon and uh, the various, you know, pre-Marxist communists. So folks might say it seems that the various anti-capitalist visionaries you describe are, are doomed to be no more effectual than, say, Occupy Wall Street was. It happened, got a lot of press, and the dream of our anarchist utopia didn't survive the real world. Yeah, I have. I guess I'd have two responses for that. Uh, one is that when you look at romantics like Ruskin or, or William Morris, uh, uh, is one who hasn't come up yet. These figures were key in the ideological and political formation of the British Labour Party. Uh, so if anybody thinks that the formation of the British Labour Party was not important, uh, I have to wonder how they evaluate history uh, and, and its significance. So many leaders and rank and file members of the Labor Party in, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries said that it was reading Ruskin and reading Morris that 
made them into socialists, that made them into want to join the Labor Party and, and affect what, you know, what, whatever degree of reform they were able to affect. So that's, uh, you know, that's one response I would give to that. Um, another, I would, I would mention somebody like John Muir, uh, who's, uh, you know, the American uh, environmental activist of the early 20th century, who I talk about in this book. I cannot conceive how you would have a modern environmental or ecological movement without uh, the writing of John Muir uh, and, and others <clears throat> who I mentioned in here. And as far as Occupy is concerned, I don't think Occupy has been completely without effect. You know, we I think we mentioned Bernie Sanders uh, earlier in in uh, in our conversation, and uh, I don't think Bernie Sanders' candidate would candidacy would have been conceivable unless we had had uh, the Occupy Wall Street uh, movement. Now, you know, did they did they overthrow capitalism? No, uh, but man, the Democratic Party for <laughs> for all its problems, uh, you know, and for all its shortcomings. Uh, is certainly not just uh, lock, stock, and barrel under neoliberalism anymore, like it was under the Clintons and Obama. Uh, and and um, I think a lot of that has to do with the energy and imagination that was provided by, um, by Occupy Wall Street. Which takes us up to the present day. And maybe let's, uh, as we conclude our conversation, let's think about uh, where we are right now in 2023, where the sheen is off neoliberalism, but capitalism has a new uh, place where all the excitement is. Uh, artificial intelligence. It's being set up as a technology that's going to upend how we live, how economies function. There's many hopes for it. On the other side, the possibility that artificial intelligence could come to dominate humanity or even lead to human extinction if AI took control of things happening in the real world. Can we apply this insight about enchantment to artificial intelligence? How should we understand the, the spiritual forces in technological systems and how they relate to the story about capitalism that we've been talking about? Yeah, I, I'm i writing, a sh uh, okay, this is from the Department of uh, Shameless Self-Promotion. I'm writing a, a short book right now uh, on automation and uh, it's kind of a historical slash philosophical slash theological illumination on it. For one thing, I think that a lot of the claims that are being made for automation and AI are frankly hyped up. Um, in, in many ways, we are nowhere close to this kind of inflection point, you know, let alone a, what is it, Ray Kurzweil calls it a singularity where, you know, we're going to be all connected to machines and all this. The, I, I think that a lot of this is, is uh, it's, it's, I think it's, even, even though I doubt it's going to happen, I think that the very ideas are significant uh, because of what they say about the role technology plays with us. Um, um, as far as, you know, AI taking over the world and destroying us and all this, I guess I'll go back to what I said earlier, which is I think this is a form of fetishism. Uh, you know, it's if, if we destroy ourselves, it's not going to be AI that does it. It's going to be us that does it. <laughs> you know, we're the ones who are going to be doing it. Because you know, I, I keep coming back to this point. We're the ones who make this technology, uh, which is why I don't think, frankly, AI is ever going to develop a consciousness of its own because it only can have what is programmed into it by us. I think we need to understand that and and you know underline it, bold it, italicize it. You know, AI is only what we make it. 
And so therefore, I think that focusing so much on the technology is a way of not focusing on the human system, the human relationships in which this technology arises. Now, as far as you know, the enchantments of Mammon are concerned, look, I mean, most of these AI companies, all of these AI companies are capitalists. So, you know, this technology and its uses are going to be informed by precisely uh, the, the same rage to accumulate and, you know, in the spirit of accumulation that you're, you've seen in previous forms of capitalism. It's the same old, same old. I mean, you know, this is the same story we've been hearing since the 17th century. You know, capitalism is going to make your life better. Well, the only way that capitalism has made anybody's life better uh, it's not just because we had, um, you know, nicer and more productive gadgets. It was because we had things like social and political movements, <laughs> you know, like like labor unions and uh, political parties uh, that that were able to shape this process in, in a more humane and generous way. Uh, it's it, it's not something that capitalism does just naturally at all. So last question, you, you didn't write this book just so people would you know, go to the library and start reading Win Stanley and Ruskin and Carlyle and Edward Arnold, um, but presumably so that people would do something. Um, so what concretely do you hope that people persuaded that there is an alternative to capitalism will do to live differently? Uh, one well, of the lines from your book, uh, I'll just read back to you, uh, a new radicalism must begin from a faith in the fundamental joy of being a realized eschatology, if you will, the future in the present tense, loving the new world and the wreckage of the old. And you mentioned not a modern, uh, not a new Benedict as per Alastair McIntyre, but rather a new St. Francis is what we need today. Um, could you unpack that a bit? Wow. I'm always, th this is the question that I always try to avoid. <laughs> mm. <laughs> This is this is where I go from being just a mere humble historian, uh, you know, the, you know, to being some kind of a prognosticator about the future. Um, look, I mean, I think in many ways the fundamental the fundamental practice is to try to be a good Christian, to try to be loving and charitable and merciful. Uh, you know, developing certain kinds of uh, one's own, developing this in one's own life. Um, as far as the political shakeout, uh, how, what 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 this all means, uh, honestly, I'm not I'm not entirely clear myself on what it means. I think that it does mean um, a I, I I do think it means that that we should support something like a revitalized kind of labor union movement, um, because I do think that um, if we're going to get a handle on things like AI. If we're going to get a handle on um, uh, the ecological devastation that the system is 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 uh, wreaking, then the, the, these movements have to be rooted in workplace struggles uh, over over the design and the deployment of technology. What I think needs to be also done is look. We got to we got to have activism within the churches. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, the American church establishment. Protestant, Catholic, uh, Orthodox, you know, include Jewish and Muslim too. I mean, I, I think that so much of the American religious establishment is bought and paid for. Uh, you know, the, these guys have not had, would not know a prophetic voice if it yelled at them for decades. 
they, you know, they've signed on to the system and man, they're not going to do anything to, to, uh, to destabilize it at all. As usual, <laughs> you know, we have to, we have to have lay people <laughs> teaching these guys how to be Christians. Hmm. Uh, and, um, yeah, I guess that's, I guess that's where I, where I'd end it. Okay. Well, thanks. All right. Take care. There you go. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met and share with your friends. For a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $36 a year will get you the print magazine or for $99 a year, you can become a member of plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits from free books to regular calls with the editors to invitations to special events and the occasional gift. Our members are one aspect of the broader Plow community, and we depend on them as a kind of extra advisory council. Go to plow.com slash membership to learn more. On our next episode, we'll be talking with Leah Labresco and Phil Christman about effective altruism.